0: who is above all and through all and in all. Each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he had ascended, what does it mean that he also had descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all heavens so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave us were that uh, some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us has come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine and by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head Christ and from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament in which it was equipped as each part is working properly promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. All right. Well, first of all, again, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the church, to everyone who is uh, celebrating or uh, missing their mother. And we're, of course, thankful for all the moms and more generally for uh, the women that are the lifeblood of this place. So thank you all. So we've been talking about Ephesians as, I don't know, like a number of things, as um, a cosmic drama that uh, sets the stakes for and uh, locates us in the universe as, uh, as a way of talking about what it means to be human. Uh, I don't know, what what's the point? Not to shamble around, led by desires that are... Uh, not pointed towards the kingdom, but to uh, walk in the world with intention and purpose, with a goal, knowing that you are a child and an inheritor of the kingdom. And as a a vision of the doctrine of grace that is more than just the idea that you've had a penalty suspended, but a grace that is like the foundation of everything, that uh, in grace God created the world, In grace, God imagines you before even the beginning of time. God desires, Ephesians says, wills you, doesn't see the universe to be complete without you. God places you in a world and gives you a family and gives you people that you love and gives you a church body and gives you gifts and gives you talents. and I don't know what codes into or encrypts into the character of the world, evidence of God's being and gives us Christ who points us towards the character of God and who redeems us and gives us direct access and I don't know once you start thinking about it this doctrine of grace is a lot bigger than the one that most of us grew up with which was basically like you're pretty mediocre as a person but luckily Christ did some work that suspended a penalty for you and of course that's true but God's grace is so much bigger than that Uh, it sustains and creates and makes the universe possible and as Paul writes in this letter Grace has done more than just create and sustain and build and, and I don't know, have God love you into existence and love you by sustaining you and continuing to love you. But what else does it do? It tears down the wall between God's chosen people and God's people who were, I don't know, not quite God's people yet. And so Paul talked last week in the section that we looked about about the idea of inviting everyone into God's household of seeing each person, whether they be Jew or whether they be Gentile, as, I don't know, being a part of the house, as being a person who is potentially adopted, as being a person who is lifted out of that state of, what did he call it, being the walking dead, the ones who just kind of wander around with no intention or purpose, and instead each one of us is, uh, I don't know, made uh, possibly a son or daughter in Christ and given a new and more abundant life. So I don't know, it's like kind of a big deal. It's a revolutionary declaration of grace. It's one that I don't think we can fully internalize. It's a lot easier to internalize the doctrine that says, hey, I'm kind of a crappy person, but God forgives me, than it is to say there is nothing in my life that I have that is not a gift of a God who loves me, than it is to say that there is nothing that I am entitled to or deserve even my own existence, but instead everything that I have, whether it be the people around me, the talents that I have, my body, even my breath is a gift of a God who loves me. Because there are so many things that we feel entitled to in our existence. There are so many things that we feel that are our possessions. There are so many things that we feel are the result of our own cleverness of, or our own merit. But the idea of grace, at least as we're talking about it, is that there's nothing that we have that is not a gift that is given us by God, and that if we think about everything in our world, everything in our lives, everything that we have is a gift, and we think about that gift as implying for us an intention and a purpose and a way of living and a direction in which we lived, and it's not just that you were bought by a cost, but instead, even more importantly than that, it's that you were given a life, one that is given to you by intention, and right off the bat, the point of the doctrine of grace is it ends up being a fairly radical vision of what it means to be loved by God. And I don't know, like, the point of the doctrine of grace is, at least we've thought about it, as I've talked about it a couple of times, is the idea, I don't know, what is it? That chapter 4, if you read most treatments of chapter 4, they say something like, and I know I'm glad Trey's back in the house, but, you know, there's this, like, formulaic way that people treat most of Paul's letter, and they'd be like, okay, chapter 4, this is where Paul gets to the practical implications for the Christian life. So this is like the moral ethical part. So, you know, first couple of chapters, he like introduces the letter and he talks about the character of God. And in chapter four, he's really going to drive home the things that you're supposed to do. And these are the practical implications of the doctrine of justification. And if you look at how most people treat chapter four, what's the word that they hone in on? Worthy. Worthy. That you're supposed to be worthy. What is it? Right there in... I think verse 1, we're supposed to be worthy. I beg you to lead a life that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I don't know, like, we all say we believe in grace. We all say we believe in this unconditional gift. We all say that we believe that God is, I don't know, about agape, but isn't there this way that we've kind of thought about this concept of living a worthy life that, I don't know, subtly undermines the doctrine of grace that we say that we believe in? That we know that we kind of, have been given this justification. But the point is that we read what Paul's saying here and we say, oh, but what it means is because we've been justified, we're supposed to live a worthy life. We're supposed to be worthy of the gift that's been given us. And, and, And secretly, I think a lot of people internalize the idea that they're not quite worthy of the thing that's been done for them. And so they start to feel as if they haven't lived up to or as if they're not appropriate to or as if they haven't done the things that God has called them to do. And listen, I think it's total BS. I think the point that Paul is making here as you think about the concept of worthiness is, is something that, I don't know, if you're a mom or you're a dad, especially on, on Mother's Day, and, or if you're children of good parents, or if you have some sense of what that relationship is like, there's a difference between saying, hey kid, you've been given everything, and you're being terrible, and I'm tired of it, and really you're not worthy for the things that your family has given you, so shape up and act right. And that's a lot different than a parent who says, hey, you have been given everything. You have had a world laid out for you and parents that love you and a family that supports you. And I want you to live as if that's the case. I want you to live out of the grace of the gift that you've been given. And if you think about that, the sense of worthiness there is not quite whether or not you live up to the thing that you've been given. In fact, if the question was, do you live up to the thing that you've been given? It isn't quite agape. It isn't quite An unconditional gift. It isn't quite a vision of grace that Paul's laying out here, and I think we have to look really closely at that word worthiness. Because in most evangelical traditions, worthiness has this kind of moral character. It's like stacking up the good and bad that someone has done to see if they are made worthy. And the narrative usually reverses the way we think about grace. It starts with the idea that you're bad and broken. And Jesus basically loans you worthiness. And the question is, have you lived up to that loan? But the point of what Paul is saying here is not that at all. The point of what Paul is saying here is this, that our idea of worthiness. Well, look, the idea of where he says, I, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life which is worthy of the calling to you've been called. And the worthy language in verse one is really interested. The first thing is, the thing that's translated as lead a life, and we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is literally to walk. It's the same word as the word uses when he talks about shambling around. It's a, it's a reference back to the idea that the goal of the Christian life is for you to move through the world with a kind of intention and purpose. And so it's not quite like leading a life as much as it is. It's about thinking about the kind of direction that you take. And then the idea of calling there, the idea of calling there. What it, does anybody remember what the idea of calling comes from? It's the exact same one that we talked about, I don't know, a couple of series ago. Calling there is not this kind of moral sense of here are the standards that God sets up for you. Calling there is an invitation to a feast. The calling to which you have been called to is the same word that they would have used. And I think we talked about this when we talked about, I don't know, Colossians or something. It's the same word that they would have used for saying that you were invited to a ginormous party where you were a guest of honor and where you'd be asked to be seated by the person who threw the celebration. And basically the point here is that Paul is saying, I am, you know, it might be better translated as, I exhort you as a prisoner in the Lord to walk worthily in the calling to which you invited. And the calling word there is the idea of being an honored guest or invited to a feast. And of course, that changes the way we think about calling is more than just, I don't know, are you living up to the moral things that God calls you to do? But the idea of worthiness here, I think, is the most important one. What does worthy mean? There's all kinds of different words that the Bible might use for worthy. So there's one word for worthy that gets translated as righteous, which is dikaios. It means like, have you made the right decisions? It's about a process of choice. The word for worthy here is different. The word for worthy here is axios. And it means something like becoming or fitting. Axios was actually the term that you would have used if you went to the market and you went to buy something. And you'd put, I don't know, however much grain on one side and the person would ask for something in exchange. And axios meant to make the balance in the scale come to uh, come so that it, you'd balance the stuff on both sides of the scale and you'd balance the scale out. So axios meant to make the beam of the scales come to equilibrium. It meant commensurable. It meant corresponding. It meant worth the while. And it was not a moral value-laden term. Like you could axios something that was good or bad. Someone could do something really bad. And you could say, well, they deserve punishment. That has to be axios. It has to be balanced out. Or you could do something that was really good. And that might have to be axios too. That might have to be balanced out. But if you put it all together, think about what Paul's saying here. I am asking you, To walk and lead a life that responds to the idea that you are an honored guest at a feast. And that feast is the feast of eternity with Christ where you're invited to be a son or a daughter of the kingdom. Where you are made an inheritor. And worthiness here does not mean living up to a moral standard. It means because you have been given so much, so much is expected of you. And you're expected to live a life that lives out of the idea that you are God's honored guest at a banquet that lasts into eternity and that you are, in fact, a person who was not only bought with a price, but the thing that you have to bring to equilibrium is the idea that God has chosen you, that God has extended an honor to you, that God has already picked you out to be the guest at this giant party. And instead of an exhortation, then to walk a certain way, instead of the not quite feeling of grace that so many Christians live with, that is, I think, scripturally bankrupt, Paul is not scolding you to be a better Christian. Instead, Paul is saying, because you have been given so much, because you have been invited to the kingdom the way that you balance it out is by walking with a purpose and an intention that advances the kingdom. Because here's the thing about that invitation. You are already, no matter what you do, an honored guest. You are already, no matter what you do, given the entitlements of and sealed into the household of God. You are already, and no matter what you do, of such value that you were imagined by God from the beginning of the universe and bought with a price at the cross." You are already, no matter what you do, given existence, redemption, salvation, eventual sanctification. You have already, no matter what you do, because God loves you, been made a child of the kingdom. You have been blessed with the gifts of existence and a body and a church and the fellowship of God and direct access to the Father. You are already, no matter what you do, invited to a banquet at which you were the honored guest. And there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more and nothing that you can do to make. God love you less. So worthiness here is not about meeting some moral calling. It's not about your behavior. But as Beth said to once, as she said it once to our kids, she said it a million times. To much is given, much will be expected. But there's nothing that you can do that will make you love, make us love you more or nothing that you can do that will make us love you less. And instead of God asking you under the penalty of threat to do the things that make you worthy, instead God is saying you're already loved and embraced and fully bought into and and, and, and fully ingratiated to the kingdom of God. You were already invited to the banquet. And because you should feel that level of belonging and love and security, act like it. That's what Paul means by being worthy. That's what he means by squaring the scale. So if you feel any, any, any inkling of guilt when you feel like you are not being worthy of your calling, throw it away immediately. Because to think that way is to deny the fact that God has already invited and embraced and endorsed and loved and imagined you from the beginning of time. There is nothing that you can do that undermines God's love, that love for you. There is nothing that you can do that will make God love you more. There is nothing in any action that you can do that can make you not worthy. Worthiness is something that is granted to you by virtue of Christ. And all Paul is asking is that you presume that, that you are secure in that, that you know that is the case. And as a result, you act in a way that's reflective of it. That's it. That's what worthiness means here. Not hitting some moral goal, not criticizing yourself, but instead seeing yourself as living in and being secure in and finding yourself at home in that vision of being a child of the kingdom. And what does it mean? What is he asking us to do? He says, as a result, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What is worthy there? It's not righteous, it's about how we relate to one another. It's about being humble and gentle and patient. And look, y'all, if you look at the Greek literature of the time, I don't know how else to say it in a very nice way. Humility was not exactly the best characteristic, okay? It's not what they wanted. Like, I don't know, maybe you've seen Gladiator and the idea that like, the actions that we take now echo into history. That was a very kind of Greek and Roman idea. And basically, they did not want you to be humble. It was something slaves were humble. Great people touted the greatness of their deeds. And in fact, the idea for the Greeks and Romans was you did great stuff because that's what made you immortal. You wanted your actions to kind of echo throughout time. So people would say, I don't know, I remember when Mason collected all the Pokemon that existed out there, and for generation after generation after generation, people would reflect back on it. But what the Bible is asking here is to say this. Because there is no thing that you can do that attributes to you any meaning, that gives you anything extra or that could be better than the fact that you're already included in the kingdom— we don't have to make our actions echo throughout time because God has defeated death, has included us in the kingdom, and unlike the Greeks and the Romans who have to make themselves seem immortal because people remember and think about them, the Christian simply rests in the idea that they are already included in and already invited into and already made part of the kingdom of God, that death is defeated and that everything that is eternal is ours by virtue of our inclusion in the kingdom, and so as a Result, instead of bragging about or showing how awesome we are, because we are members in an eternal community, we can be what? Gentle, patient, and humble with one another, because in Jesus Christ we are already more than conquerors, and that is the carry that, that is the character of grace. And even as an extension of that, what do we do? What does it mean for us? It means that we bear with one another in love. The Greek word there is anaktimoi, and it means to complete a process, to stick with. In agape, it's borrowed from the word, and Paul's kind of playing on the fact that he's a prisoner here, to be, uh, it's it's borrowed from this word sundaeo, which means like to be chained to another person. And Paul's saying in the same way that he is chained to the wall somewhere in Rome, that we are chained to one another, that we have a process that we're supposed to stick with, that we're supposed to bear with one another in love is, is easier, as is difficult as that may be. And sometimes, and, 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 and we're supposed to do it because we want to maintain the bond of, bond of peace, because the point for us is that because Christ has given us everything, there's nothing that we need individually. And so what do we do? We stick with one another in love because we've been given everything else, and what we have is the growth of the body. That's what Paul says in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, There is one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And each of us is giving grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. If you don't think that the main point that he's saying is that you have been given everything by virtue of your participation in the body, I want you to think about the idea here that Christ is the new measure of what is fair. I think about fairness a lot. I know my kids think about fairness a lot. I don't know, if you have kids, they think about fairness a lot too. Like this person got this and I didn't get this. And how dare this person get this? I'm so much better positioned or more talented or worked harder or whatever the thing is. Like a big part of being a human being is this weird dynamic between resentment and entitlement where we say there are things that we deserve and how dare other people get things that we don't get and yada, yada, yada. And what Paul's saying is that That kind of thinking, that kind of thinking is the kind of thinking that puts you at the center. That kind of thinking is the kind of thinking that is the kind of thinking that the Roman or Greek folk might have had when they said, look, I got to kind of ensure for myself the most glory or I got to get mine. And the Christian thinks differently. The Christian thinks differently because why? Because we have been given everything. We've been given all things. We've been included in a community. That community includes a a range of different gifts. Those gifts are not just for the individual, but instead those gifts are for everybody. And Paul's point is what? I think the most important part of it is in verses 6 and and, and 7 there where he says that Christ is the measure of all things. Christ is the measure of all things of what is fair, and that instead of saying, what is it that I have, or what is it that I ought to be entitled to as an individual, or even what is it that I ought to be entitled to under the law, or under the law's conception of fairness, the Christian says, because I am adopted to the body, and a part of the body, and because we share everything in the body, whatever is a gift of someone in the bodies is necessarily a gift of mine, and the main thing that we focus on is not what makes us better, or makes us worse, but what instead strengthens and builds up the body because that's where it's at. That's why Paul says in 8, therefore it said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to who? To his people. And when it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill what? All things. There's this big historical debate about what this means. There's a party that thinks that this means Christ Christ descends to the earth in the incarnation. There's a party that thinks this means that it's a description of what's about to happen at Pentecost. There's a party, I happen to be in this party, that think that it means the descent into hell. But in the end, I don't care that much because the message is what matters here. The message is that there are all kinds of things that are that hold us captive. There are all kinds of things that cause us, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, to shamble around based on our own desires, our own intentions, our own ends, our own goals. But Christ has captured captivity. That is, he has taken the things that hold us, that direct our attention, that are not about him. He has gobbled them up and instead he has in grace made it so that he stands aside every person who is felt locked out, ignored, dispossessed, hopeless, left, cast aside for every person who feels like they don't have an purpose or intention, that they're not included in the kingdom and Christ ascends somewhere, whether it's in the incarnation, whether it's to hell or whether it's in Pentecost and says, I invite you all to become part of a body and in becoming part of a body, you become part of a new humanity. That new humanity is one that has not only defeated death, but is one in which you are fully extended co-participation in the kingdom in which you are fully made a son or daughter of Christ in which you are extended a grace that is beyond our comprehension and yet takes care of and assures for us everything that we could ever possibly want. We are literally grafted into and made a part of a new body. And once you see that, that grace the grace that sustains and creates and unites us and makes possible a world and if you are grabbed by that grace and if you are made part of that body and if you have an inkling of what it means to participate in it. If you understand that the gifts that others have in that body are gifts that are available to you because of the fullness of that body. And if you see yourself, I don't know, as not just part of a team, but part of a whole, a whole that you are grafted into, a whole that you are made part of and that such that any gift of one is a gift of yours. If you fully see that, then you can see the power of and the beauty of a vision of Christ whose grace creates, sustains us and makes us and redeems us and sanctifies us and all those things. And once we see Christ who created, who imagined us from the beginning, who gives us these gifts, who gives some gifts to apostles, some gifts to prophets, some to evangelists, some to pastors and some to teachers, but whatever the range of those gifts are, the goal of them is all to build up the body. And he says in 13, to come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a maturity so that we're no longer blown uh, to and fro by uh, doctrines or by people's trickery or by craftiness or scheming but instead we see as our goal that we can speak as he says in 15 the truth and love and we grow up so that we follow Christ the head and in doing so we are knit together into a body once we see that Christ, the Christ who created, who imagined, who abides in us, who lives through us, who stands with us, who sustains us, and once we understand that in him, and with him, and through him, and I don't know, I'll quote a prayer from St. Patrick here, that the Christ is with me, and before me, and behind me, and in me, and beneath me, and above me, and with me when I lie, and with me when I sit, and in the heart of every man who thinks of me, and in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, and every eye that sees me, and every ear that hears me, and And once... We understand Christ who is the foundation, who is the beginning of all being, who loves us into existence and embraces us, who is our home, who is our redeemer, and all those things. Once we understand him to be the foundation of all that is and all that was and all that will be, and we understand ourselves to be sons and daughters, we understand that our worthiness is not something we earn, but it is a gift that he has given us, an inheritance which we are invited to live into. Only then, then and only then, will we find a worthiness that grows out of not what we have done but what we are given and because we live out of what we are given we can find a rest and a security and a power that is granted to us so that we might live lives that are humble and kind and loving that join us and knit us together with a body as a whole Amen Questions or talk?